Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Cecilia Treberg. She's a psychology PhD candidate in the Social Decision-Making Lab at the University of Cambridge, where her work seeks to bridge the fields of social influence and cognitive science. Broadly speaking, her research focuses on how groups act as sources of influence on our judgments and beliefs, including how intergroup biases impact our ability to assess the veracity of information and how social cues and interactions with other people affect individual level cognition. And today we're focusing mostly on misinformation. So Cecilia, welcome to the show. It's a big pleasure to everyone. Thank you so much for the invitation. So, I mean, I've already had a few interviews on misinformation on the show, in fact, but uh, let's go through this again, because uh, when we talk about misinformation, different people have somewhat different understandings of what it means exactly. So what is misinformation? Yeah, it's a really good question. And as you noted, um, different researchers define it in different ways. So I think uh, a quite predominant uh, definition in the field is to define it according to the source or using source-based definitions. Um, so defining fake news as you know news coming from fictitious or made-up sources and defining kind of true news as news coming from real mainstream uh, popular sources. Um, but I take a slightly different approach, um, given that uh, news doesn't need to be completely false to be misleading. Um, I and researchers in our lab define it instead according to whether or not the content uh, itself makes use of uh, misleading or um, yeah, uh, deceptive strategies such as emotionally manipulative rhetorics or presenting false dichotomies. So using a more kind of content-based uh, definition. And, um, you know, misinformation is a term that's used quite uh, broadly to cover um, even sometimes things that I wouldn't define as misinformation because um, misinformation can also be spread by accident. Um, but sometimes we use it to also describe information that is um, spread intentionally, which some researchers would instead define as disinformation. Mm -hmm. So intentionality matters here, but then probably some people would use more the word disinformation instead of misinformation, even though disinformation is like a subset of misinformation. Right. Yeah, so you could say that, uh, yeah, misinformation is kind of any false information or information that turns out to be false. You know, sometimes journalists might publish something where they have maybe misinterpreted a scientific study, but they're not intending to mislead their audience. Then they will later retract the article, but then this would be misinformation. If there was, was an individual looking to actually kind of sway people's opinions and mislead, then we would call it disinformation. And then finally, propaganda is disinformation with a specific, specific political agenda. So, you know, with disinformation, you can have any form of agenda. You can also have a financial agenda or a social agenda, but with propaganda specifically, it is um, political. So intentionality does matter. Um, however, when we look at whether or not people believe it, um, we kind of see similar effects across the board, whether it's, you know, intentional or not. Mm -hmm. So I would like to ask you now about uh, a couple of phenomena, I guess, uh, related to misinformation. Actually, even though I've already had several conversations with people on the show about the topic of misinformation, I don't remember asking anyone about this yet. So this is very interesting. Uh, what is perceived source similarity and perceived source credibility and how do they relate to misinformation? Sure. So um, I'll start with perceived source similarity. Um, so perceived source similarity can be 
many different things. And we say perceived because it kind of depends on the individual and how they perceive the source to be. Um, so source similarity is essentially when you are presented with information from kind of a, a message sender. This could be a news source. It could also be a Facebook friend sharing something. It could be um, an organization sharing something. Um, we kind of use uh, a series of um, uh, heuristics to assess whether or not we think the source is similar to us. And um, this similarity can be uh, a multitude of things. It can be, you know, whether we perceive them to have the same political uh, ideology as us. It could be, it can even be something as simple as um, whether or not they kind of look like us. It can be whether we think they have the, the same attitudes as us towards like a, a very specific um, topic or um, whether, you know, we share the same background, you know, there's, so there's a various different types of um, similarity we can perceive and we often pick up on these very quickly when we are exposed to a source. Um, so in my work, I look a lot uh, at political similarity or perceived political similarity. So when we look at a source, we kind of um, assess whether or not we think the source has a political ideology to us. And we do this with both um, organizational and individual sources. And so for example, in one of my papers, we assessed whether uh, conservatives and liberals in the US judge uh, different organizational sources in different ways. And um, when we look at how they perceive the slant of those sources, we find that um, liberals perceive a lot of conservative sources as highly conservatively slanted, um, whereas they kind of perceive liberal sources as neutral um, and vice versa for conservatives. But we do have a very kind of quick judgment of whether or not we think the source is politically similar to us. Um, Perceived source credibility um, is is different but related. So that is, you know, built on whether or not we think the source is kind of um, is both uh, trustworthy um, and is, you know, uh, competent in giving us the information that we seek from that source. Um, so this kind of makes up the, the credibility. So if we think the source is credible, again, it's perceived credibility because um, credibility is um, subjective. Um, I mean, there's also objective levels of credibility, of course, but um, we do also find in our work that people have highly different perceptions of different sources' credibility. Um, and these two are linked. So source similarity is very linked to source credibility. So if we perceive a source to be um, similar to us, this also contributes to our perceptions of its credibility, um, which is important when we look at misinformation because people use credibility to assess information from news sources. And so about perceived source credibility, does it have an effect on misinformation susceptibility? Yeah, so um, essentially you could say that uh, if we kind of objectively look at source credibility, so, you know, some sources, uh, especially, you know, main, a lot of mainstream news, news sources that follow strict uh, ethical journalistic practices of um, accuracy and research, and um, these sources are, you know, higher on objective credibility than some individuals sitting in their bedroom creating kind of a fictitious news site. So there are some measures of objective credibility, but in terms of perceived uh, credibility, um, the more credible we perceive a source to be, uh, the more likely we are to believe misinformation from those sources. Um, this is important both in terms of looking at, you know, fictitious sources, but also mainstream sources, because just because a source is, you know, popular does not mean it doesn't sometimes um, publish misleading content. And because we know that perceived credibility affects misinformation susceptibility, this means that if we're exposed to, you know, a source that we perceive to be credible and that source publishes misleading content, we are more likely to believe it. 
um, you could say that this is actually a good thing because we should use our perceptions and evaluations of a source's credibility to judge whether or not we think it's you know, publishing true information. The problem is our perceptions can be biased um, and news sources and, um, and fake news producers are getting much better at kind of mimicking um, credible looking um, sources. So yeah, it's, it's, it's not always a reliable measure, but it's one of the best ones we have, if you could put it like that. And so, do we know if this affects liberals and conservatives equally? So, uh, in a way, yes, in a way, no. So, if we look at conservatives and liberals, they both pay attention to whether or not they perceive the source to be credible when judging whether the information is true or false. Um, in fact, liberals maybe use it slightly more. Um, they kind of are kind of better at uh, evaluating the source's credibility in general um, when it comes to uh, judging the information. However, um, conservatives tend to be more likely to fall for misinformation in general. And we do also find that um, when liberals and conservatives evaluate the credibility of sources, um, even though liberals rely more on credibility evaluations, in general, when we look at news sources and which kind of sides of the spectrum are more likely to publish misinformation, then that is in fact conservative news outlets that are kind of slightly more likely to. And so this means uh, that even though liberals rely more on perceived source credibility, conservatives will actually be more likely to fall for misinformation because there is just more of it on the conservative side. Mm -hmm. And by conservative outlets, just to be a little bit more clear, uh, you are referring to both mainstream media and alternative media or just mainstream media? Uh, both. So while mainstream conservative media sites publish less misinformation than, you know, very, uh, very, very political and alternative news outlets, they do publish more misinformation than mainstream liberal outlets. So if we, for example, compare something like CNN and Fox News, um, a PolitiFact rating uh, found that um, it was up to 58% of uh, news published by Fox that uh, turned out to be either uh, false or mostly false. Um, but this was around 10 years ago, but I think it's up there still, with the same number being in the around uh, 20% for CNN. Um, so this means, you know, both sides of the spectrum can sometimes say things that turn out to be false later on but it just happens more on the conservative side. If we look at something like, you know, Breitbart instead, that number is going to be higher. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. But I mean, when it comes to this uh, slight difference between uh, liberals and conservatives, when it comes to publishing more misinformation and uh, having a, a slightly higher tendency to believe in misinformation, do we know exactly what aspects of psychology explain that? I mean, I mean, are there any specific differences, psychological differences between liberals and conservatives that would contribute to that? And you mean kind of what drives the difference in their susceptibility on mm -hmm. a psychological level? Yes. Um, so one of them is definitely that uh, that you know that conservative news outlets just publish more misinformation um, i'm not sure like what on a on a psychological level that actually uh that actually drives this um the difference other than kind of the the news outlets difference um yeah it could also be that um some some research shows that uh, conservatives are slightly higher on motivated reasoning than liberals. Um, and so this means that when we kind of, like, if we kind of pretended that liberal outlets and conservative outlets were the same amount of 
misinformation, then when conservatives read things that are kind of in line with their political beliefs, they are slightly more likely to interpret it um, in line with what they kind of already believe um, than, than liberal. Um, but I do think it's mainly driven by the news outlets themselves. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned motivated reasoning there. So in general, what is the role played by motivated cognition here? So uh, motivated reasoning or motivated cognition is kind of our tendency to evaluate information based on whether or not it kind of fits with our pre-existing worldview. So it's a form of bias. Um, and it means that, you know, we kind of really like uh, and our brains really like information that kind of that already confirms our our pre-existing beliefs because it allows us to hold the same opinions and and judgments about the world um so it's kind of there's no cognitive dissonance there um so that definitely plays a role in how we evaluate information online um it's of course not uh not the only thing um it just means that when we are exposed to cues on the internet, um, if the if the evidence or the the article headline kind of says something that we like or that fits with our worldviews, we might also then in turn interpret the social cues surrounding it as like evidence that this is true. Um, for example, if we see a headline, if I see a headline that I that fits with my worldview, and I see that it has let's say a lot of a lot of likes a lot of shares a lot of you know engagement then i will kind of interpret this as you know everyone agrees with me um if i for example see a headline that uh, kind of disagrees with my worldview and you know see lots of likes and lots of engagement then i might instead interpret the engagement as you know other people just you know misunderstanding the headline or being you know uh let's say like less less intelligent and less able to kind of properly evaluate uh, the headline. You know, so we also interpret the evidence differently depending on whether it kind of confirms our views. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't like motivated cognition at all, but I really love when news confirm my biases and <laughs> pre-existing <Yeah>. beliefs. <laughs> yeah, it makes it makes it kind of easier to to be in the world where we see things that kind of um, yeah, because it allows us to kind of have a more smooth experience of news consumption as well. You know, it's yeah. only really when things stand out and we're like, hold on, that's not true, um, that we kind of stop, you know, and need to process it a bit more. Yeah, it, it takes more work to do that. So, mm -hmm. uh, and what do you make of inattention accounts of the sharing of fake news? And what is that really about? Yeah, so with the inattention accounts, um, inattention accounts essentially suggest that the reason we uh, believe misinformation or the reason we share fake news online is because we're simply not paying attention to accuracy. We're simply just not evaluating whether or not or thinking about whether or not the headlines are, are accurate. So we're just not paying attention. There's like a uh, quite a famous paper called lazy, uh, lazy, not biased, you know, we're just lazy. That's why we share misinformation. So, and a big, a big nature study was also published on this um, two years ago, finding that if we, if, if people are simply, you know, reminded to be accurate online, reminded like, hey, are you thinking about accuracy, then this will um, lower their intentions to share misinformation online. So I do think that there is, you know, some evidence that this plays a role, but I definitely don't think it uh, tells the whole story. So, for example, um, uh, reanalyzing the data from the big nature paper from a few years ago, um, my colleagues and I found that um, these, if we kind of separated uh, liberals and conservatives, these accuracy nudges or reminders to be accurate, didn't work uh, for conservatives. And conservatives, as we just discussed, are the main sharers of misinformation. So then do these nudges then really work? Um, so we were a little bit kind of skeptical about that. There's also a, a recent paper that came out this year that also challenged the account, um, uh, the inattention account, suggesting that, you know, actually 40% of 
people who or that's that was kind of their number 40 percent of people who are sharing fake news online um or sorry 40 percent uh, of what was shared of fake news online was shared by only 15 percent of kind of the users so it's like a small proportion responsible for a big amount and they were also finding that the people who were sharing this they were kind of sharing a lot in general um so they were both sharing things that were fake that were you know uh, attacking opponents but also things that were fake that were kind of um going against their own political beliefs so they were just sharing more information in general um, so it wasn't necessarily, so they also challenged the um, inattention account um, because in, in their study, you know, um, uh, perceptions of accuracy didn't really matter. And finally, there was also a, another study from 2016 that looked at, you know, that basically asked people to rate a series of um, reasons for why they share information in general on the internet, on social media. And a lot of the a lot of the reasons that people indicated um, were more kind of um, were more social reasons. So wanting to share things that grabbed other people's attention. And that's also what the 2023 paper found that people basically want to share things that are going to get them engagement rather than, you know, necessarily, you know, accurate content in general. Um, and on this list of why people uh, wanted to share information accuracy out of like 30 measures, accuracy was one of the like last three so people aren't necessarily you know wanting to share things because they're accurate um that being said of course there is evidence that you know we probably should remind people of accuracy to get those people who aren't just thinking about it but yes i don't think um i don't think it's it's the whole story and i'm also slightly skeptical as to whether this would actually work in the real world um when you know everything is put within a social context and there are a lot more reasons than just you know accuracy motivations yeah there's something there that you touched on slightly and uh, please correct me if i'm wrong because most of the conversations i've had on the show about misinformation are actually from around two years ago and so some of the information might be a bit outdated but uh, if it's still right, I guess that uh, we also have to keep in mind that uh, most of the misinformation that circulates online, for example, is produced by a very tiny number of people and is also actually shared by a small percentage of people mm -hmm. and is engaged by a small percentage of people usually. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so that's that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, I do think, however, that um, you know any amount of misinformation in our newsfeed can still you know affect us, even if it's like a very 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 small percentage of our our news diets. Um, then you know even a little bit can cause a lot of harm, um, both in terms of you know affecting our behavior and our worldviews in general. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I guess that the reason why I'm mentioning this is because many people nowadays, because of uh, narrative surrounding a supposed post-truth era and stuff like that, they think that suddenly like 90% of news they see is fake news and it's not at all. And uh, people think that they, that we are like on the brink of the total collapse of <laughs> truth. <laughs> and, uh, you have to doubt uh, uh, everything you see online or uh, on the news, but that's actually not true, right? Yeah, so it's 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 definitely not true, like to to the extent that you're describing it there. Um, yeah, so I think that's 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 also the, the the danger of always talking about post truth era is that you know there are um, people who will kind of spin that to become a form of misinformation in order to say that you know now we can't trust anyone and that's also you know the fine line that I want to draw in my work is that you know I want people to be more aware of their you know biases when it comes to evaluating you know the credibility of sources. But I don't think we should uh, stop actually evaluating the credibility mm -hmm. of sources because mainstream sources are still uh, more reliable than um, mm -hmm. 
yeah, than alternative news sources. And uh, it is not the case that most mainstream news sources are trying to mislead us. And fake news is not news that, you know, kind of isn't in line with our political opinions. We can't just call everything we don't like yeah. fake news. And that's really harmful to kind of our real study of misinformation. No, actually, I really love having these kinds of conversations on the show about misinformation because there's actually misinformation about misinformation out there, yeah. about <laughs> how misinformation works and how it disseminates and all of that, because some people, even some science communicators themselves, have this very simplistic idea that people, uh, people in general just believe in anything they see anywhere and that's mm -hmm. not true and that, and also it's very important to understand some of the psychological motivations and particularly their political and social motivations to understand how misinformation really works right? yeah exactly and it was also you know uh if we look back to when you know the term fake news became really popular it was in 2016 when Trump was calling everything fake news yeah. and the fake news media, etc. So that is kind of what kind of spiraled the term fake news to to become to become so popular. But of course now, or also hopefully, then we we knew that fake news is just not, you know, the media in general. Right. So let's talk now about interventions to try to reduce people's susceptibility to fake news because I guess that. One thing that is very important here is to uh, accurate, accurately measure uh, the, uh, that, redu um, that reduction in susceptibility to fake news. So how is it measured? I mean, when you uh, try an intervention, how do you measure how much effect it has on people's susceptibility to fake news? And what would you say are perhaps some of the possible limitations of these measurements? So I think in general we can say that there is kind of two schools of thought when it comes to how we measure misinformation susceptibility. Yep. So uh, in, in our lab we mainly look at you know whether people are persuaded to believe information that is unreliable is in fact reliable. So we, we show them a series of headlines and ask them to rate the reliability often on a scale of from one to seven. So how reliable is this information? We use a very uh, kind of um, I guess vague term or um, it's not you know that specific. We don't define it for people because we we want their their they're very kind of blunt observations. We just want them to think for a second about the reliability and, and assess it, um, not tell them how they should assess it, and because we, we're not in, uh, intending to motivate them to assess it in a certain way. Um, sometimes we ask them to rate the, the, their perceived accuracy, but it's always this you know perceived um, level. Um, other researchers um, use truth discernment, so that's looking at whether or how good people are at discerning between what's real and false. So that will all often be, you know, uh, uh, a subtraction between their judgments of uh, real news and their judgments of fake news to see how good people are at discerning. I think the problem with that measure is that it often um, doesn't doesn't capture anything uh, or doesn't capture everything because it kind of hides things within the measure. So often, you know, when we can say that. Uh, if we say that people improved their truth discernment, um, often what those interventions are doing is not reducing their susceptibility to misinformation, but is increasing their judgments um, of uh, reliable or truthful information. So they're not, you know, judging fake news as less true. They're just judging true news as more true, um, which is also a positive outcome, but we're just not moving the fake news measure, which is often what we're intending to do. So it can kind of hide things within. So I, so I do believe the, the misinformation, you know, perceived reliability of fake news is a kind of more accurate measure when it comes to testing uh, interventions. And um, if our goal is to reduce misinformation susceptibility and not just kind of boost um, 
credible uh, judgments of, of true news. Of course, that's also a positive outcome, but I do think we need to separate the two so that we can properly see what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there are debunking and pre-banking approaches. Could you tell us about each of them and do we know at this point which of them works best? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. So uh, debunking and pre-banking just uh, means whether or not we're doing it before people are exposed to, to fake news or, or after. Um, so debunking, you know, could be anything from like fact checking or credibility ratings, you know, you might be exposed to uh, a headline and then, you know, it might have like a caption on it, you know, from the social media site that says, you know, this content has, has been, you know, um, rated as being not credible. Make sure you think about this when you, when you, when you look at it, or it could be, you know, fact checking websites that actually, you know, rate information. Um, it could also be, um, you know, a, let's say a news site that has published something unintentionally false, who then later issue a retraction mm -hmm. and kind of debunk their own claim. Um, but the problem with these things is, you know, firstly, if we, for example, take the last example, not everyone who saw the original article is going to see the kind of the, the retraction. So retractions don't, don't often work. Um, both because people don't always see them, but also even when they see them, they might not process it as as deeply as when they first saw the article. So, for example, let's see, let's say you see a, a headline that says, uh, you know, vitamin supplements cause cancer or something like this, and then you think, oh my God, that this is this like shocks my worldview, and so you kind of layer it a bit deeper because it's that much more shocking when you then later see see a retraction it might only kind of reduce uh kind of your belief in the original headline a little bit but you still maintain like a little brain of truth in your brain um and uh, and in general when we look at uh you know whether or not you know debunking works overall and there's also the the continued influence effect which suggests that information continues to 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 impact our our reasoning even after it's been formally retracted. Um, there's also something called the sleeper effect, which is, you know, a little bit uh, less well studied, but it basically suggests that as the message gets separated from the source, like even if we see a headline that, that says something and we, we see the source and we think, oh, that source isn't reliable, um, then later on we kind of might forget what the source was and that the source was unreliable, but we just remember remember the headline, you know. For example, if we think about, you know, many common misconceptions, you know, you might have heard like the 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 saying that you can hear uh, you can see the the Great Wall of China from the moon. Many people just think that you can um, because we've heard it, but no one remembers who told them that. We just remember that, but that's actually not true. Um, but you know, most people can't say who they heard it from. Um, if we then look at pre-bunking, this is a lot more effective because we're kind of catching people before they are exposed. Um, and pre-bunking can, you know, be a variety of things. You know, accuracy nudges could also be a form of pre-bunking if it's done, you know, before um, people are exposed to the headline. You know, it can be done both post and uh, pre and post. Um, but a lot of our work looks at inoculation theory, as you probably know, looking at whether we can preliminarily uh, psychologically vaccinate people against misinformation before they are exposed to it and before kind of misinformation infiltrates their minds, if you could say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, about debunking, there are certain things that tend to annoy me a bit because, for example, as in many other countries now, here in Portugal, we also have on the news, small segments of fact-checking where the journalists uh, uh, pick perhaps some post on Facebook or in, uh, in any other kind of social media that, that, has, um, that makes a claim and then they go and check if it's actually true or not. They, they check the facts. But, uh, I mean, uh, I guess that for some people who are not very politically motivated, that might 
work, but uh, also if you go on the comment section of those fact-checking uh, segments, I mean, uh, if it, if it, if the piece of misinformation has anything to do, particularly with some political figure or political party, people who are affiliated with it or sympathize with it, <laughs> you are not convincing them of anything yeah. because they've already saw it. And uh, I mean, in their minds, particularly if it comes from news media and if goes against, if it goes against their political beliefs. Forget it. They, 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 yeah. think, they think it's just fake news coming from uh, news media. So, Yeah, exactly. So you could say that there is also kind of a, a perception that fact checkers are highly liberal and highly biased. Mm -hmm. So they're just going to, you know, yeah, the, the right leaning side might then think that, you know, the fact checks are, checkers are essentially the equivalent of Donald Trump just calling everything fake news that we don't like, you know. Um, yeah. But, you know, most... Uh, if not all um, reliable and credible fact-checking uh, websites and organizations um, are really not partisan. Um, and they use a very kind of uh, uh, a very uh, unbiased number of measures to evaluate whether or not something is likely to be uh, false or true. There's also quite an interesting study from a couple of years ago that found that when, you know, um, when conservatives are told that, um, you know, uh, statements by Donald Trump are, you know, false, um, this actually does lead them to, you know, they do, they do believe that, that it's false. Um, they, they are kind of accepting of, you know, okay, maybe, maybe what he's saying is not true, but it doesn't change their perception of Trump or their willingness mm -hmm. to vote for him. So, you know, even if we can kind of, you know, change people's perceptions about information, it's, you know, the buildup of all of the, the fake news still, um, you know, makes people have a certain perception of different sources. Mm -hmm. Yes, and another thing that also annoys me is, uh, I mean, and I'm very well aware of this because up till, up till recently I was part of several science communication and skeptic groups on Facebook, for example, uh, is uh, one thing that really annoys me there is that uh, many people, uh, when it comes to debunking certain false claims, uh, they usually add to the text something like, oh, people who believe these are stupid or are ignorant. And I'm like, you're not going to achieve anything positive with that. I mean, you might feel good because you're sort <laughs> of signaling to your group that uh, you don't believe in that and you think that people who believe it are stupid or something like that. But when it comes to really actually trying to convince people, other people, that that piece of information is false, that doesn't help at all, calling people stupid or ignorant or whatever. No, and likely that has just has a backfire effect, right? Um, and polarizes groups even more mm -hmm. um, and makes someone, yeah, like, yeah, just polarizes those those groups even more. So that's definitely not helpful. Yeah. So you touched on inoculation theory, and this is also something that I uh, touched on slightly in my second interview with Dr. Sander van der Linden about his recent book, Foolproof. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about it? I mean, what is it based on and how does it apply specifically to misinformation? Yeah, so so actually it's a um, resisting persuasion or kind of brainwashing theory from the 1960s um, originated uh, or originally proposed by a researcher called Maguire, who suggested that um, basically, you know, uh, inducing resistance to persuasion might work in similar ways to when we um, immunize individuals against viral attacks and that similar mechanisms might be at play. Um, basically indicating that uh, by exposing people to weakened doses of misinformation or um, misleading strategies, 
um, and combining that with a, a threat element and kind of reminding them that um, they need to be kind of mentally prepared, uh, a bit like, you know, uh, um, when the immune system is triggered. Um, this can yeah, actually... the, the analogy here would be, would be with the immune system and vaccination, right? Yes, exactly. So it's basically, you know, a psychological vaccine using similar strategies to when we uh, immunize the body against viral attacks and that we can do this in a similar way, but with the mind to create uh, mental antibodies um, against misinformation. Mm -hmm. And so there are fact-based and technique-based inoculations. What's the difference there? So um, fact-based ones will will mainly, you know, uh, let's say teach people or train people to spot uh, specific uh, misleading facts. So this could be, for example, in a study on um, inoculating against misinformation about climate change. Um, the fact-based ones will then, you know, uh, both uh, uh, forewarn individuals of an impending persuasive attack at the same time with providing them with the specific factual information that's going to pre-bunk the claims they will later be exposed to. So this could be, for example, the scientific consensus. So saying, you know, just so you know, no matter what you're going to see in the future, we do know that 97% of climate scientists agree that climate change is happening. So when you're then later exposed to, for example, the Oregon petition, which suggests that there's hundreds of signatures from scientists that say climate change is not real, you kind of evaluate that in a different light, given that you've been presented with the true facts before. Um, you do have to combine it with the threat element, because otherwise you're just providing them with the facts. And we do know that, like, uh, you know, telling people or forewarning people, combining it with facts is, is superior to just giving them the facts. However, of course, it's really difficult to inoculate against every fact, like every um, piece of misinformation that people are going to be exposed to. I mean, you can only really do it with like the big things like climate change misinformation and things like that. Um, so that's where technique-based inoculations come in, where instead of inoculation against specific facts, we train individuals to spot the misleading, the underlying techniques used in misinformation so, so that they can spot flawed and misleading arguments and headlines, um, which then instead applies to a multitude of areas, making them much more, um, much more powerful uh, inoculation treatments for individuals. Um, and so when it comes to how we apply or should apply this to different kinds of inoculations, is it that, um, I mean, one of them works better than the other or should we use them at the same time and they sort of complement each other? So I, do, I think the last one for sure, because, um, you know, fact-based ones work a bit more locally you know, um, and they probably work better for, you know, very specific forms of misinformation. However, they're just really difficult to kind of translate and kind of, um, yeah, as I said, you just can't inoculate people against all misleading information. So therefore, I do think they need to be combined with the technique-based ones, because I do think that, uh, as I said in the beginning, information doesn't need to be completely false to be misleading. And if we can instead get people to um, reason more correctly about, you know, the underlying um, deceptiveness of a message. They'll be much better able to spot misleading information from various different sources on various different topics. And this is really what we want. We don't want to tell people really what's false. We want them to be better able to, to see what's misleading and not in general. Mm -hmm. Okay, so one last topic slash question then. So, how effective is inoculation against misinformation? What do we know about it at this point? So if you kind of look at um, general social interventions, um, inoculation is up there as one of the ones that has like a really, really good effect size. So um, when we talk like uh, scientific levels and measures of effect size, we, we have some quite, uh, quite positive evidence that inoculation does work, especially for the ones who are kind of most susceptible. Um, that being said, um, 
you know, it's difficult to inoculate the whole world. Um, and, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of the evidence we currently have is from people who are kind of either willing to participate in scientific studies or who are willing to kind of learn more about misinformation. Um, the problem is, you know, getting people who are really susceptible, who are, you know, not wanting to learn about misinformation, especially not from liberal academics, um, to be inoculated, because those are the people we really would want to to get to. Um, I've I've also in in my work looked a lot at um, what happens when inoculation occurs in the real social world, where we're also exposed to, as I said in the beginning, misinformation from. Uh, sources that we really trust um, or uh, misinformation in a context in which we see everyone else believing it as well. Do inoculation treatments still work? So one of my recent studies that's not yet published, we, we basically looked at whether we can inoculate people against misinformation from in-group sources. So for example, can we inoculate a conservative against misinformation from a conservative source um, and likewise for liberals. And my initial hypothesis was a bit, uh, I was a bit skeptical about it. I thought, you know, maybe these treatments will work less well. But actually, we, we find the opposite, that inoculation works especially well um, against misinformation from in-group sources, um, likely because we are just more susceptible to that in the beginning. So teaching people about these misleading underlying strategies is more helpful for especially that type of misinformation because it's so persuasive. So we're better able to move people. Um, it com compared to, you know, uh, misinformation from outgroup sources, which we already don't believe, you know, we're already pretty good at saying, you know, that's not true when I don't like the source, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Yeah. So would you like to tell people more about the work you're doing at the moment, the kinds of things you're working on for your PhD? Sure. So, yeah, in my PhD, I'm looking at, you know, the how social context in general influences people in relation to misinformation. So um, the social context includes both like social cues that we are exposed to. So, you know, if we are exposed to the different sources we're exposed to, but also um, the, the kind of general social cues. So this could be, you know, surrounding social media cues like likes and comments. How does what the comments say underneath the headline influence whether or not we perceive it to be true? Um, it could also be what are, what, how do our perceptions of what other people believe um, influence whether we believe misinformation? So for example, in some of my studies, I expose people to information about other participants saying like, you know, everyone else believes this, Here's the headline. What do you think? And we, we kind of test whether or not those uh, judgments affect people. And then I integrate this work with inoculation theories to kind of make them more robust to test whether, you know, given what we know about the context, can we still inoculate people within that context? Um, and uh, in, in future work, for example, I, um, I'm going to be a storytelling fellow at University Arts London for the last year of my PhD, where I'll be looking at the impact of social interactions. So kind of, you know, we are actually having uh, an interactive moment right here. How does, you know, real social interaction influence our susceptibility to misinformation? Because current work really does mainly use either experimental methods. So we expose people to like static social information or computational online methods where we can, you know, look at real social behavior, but we can't establish causality. So I would like to kind of combine the two. So trying to move more from the, a lab setting to a real world setting. Right? Yeah, exactly. And kind of examining how when people actually interact, what, what happens if they, it could either be, you know, people actually interacting online or actually interacting in person. Mm -hmm. Great. So would you like to tell people where they can find you and your work on the internet? So I have my website, ceciliatreberg.com. Um, that's where kind of most of my work is. Uh, also on my Google Scholar page, that's my actual kind of publications. And uh, there's also a little bit of stuff on me on the Social Decision Making Lab website, if people are interested. 
Great, so I'm leaving links in the description box to all of that and Cecilia, thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the show. Best of luck with your PhD and it's been great to talk to you. Thank you so much for the really interesting discussion. Thank you. Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you liked it, please do not forget to like it, share, comment and subscribe. And if you like more generally what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show on Patreon or PayPal. You, get, you have all of the links in the description of this interview. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Perga Larsen, Jerry Muller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Visser, Adam Castle, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Enrique Alenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Robert Windegger, Ruinacio, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Kavanagh, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andreev, Francis Ford, Tiago Dunes, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Jonathan Leibrandt, John Linares, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Weira, Tom Amel, Sardis France, David Sloan Wilson, Yassila Desarauzo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavlo Stasevsky, Nelek Bach, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, Simon Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortesus, Lalitska, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Morten Eichland, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Loaki, Georgius Theophanes, Chris Williamson, Peter Olozen, David Williams, Diogo Costa, Anton Eriksson, Charles Murray, Alex Shaw, Amory Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Bangalore Atheists, Larry Dilly Jr., Holt Erickburn, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Grassi, Tom Roth, DRPMD, Igor N., Jeff McMahon, Jake Zul, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Richard Bowen, Thomas Dobner, Luke Neeson, Chris Story, Manuel Oliveira, Kimberly Johnson, and Benjamin Galbart. A special thanks to my producers, Cesar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Tom Vanegdam, Bernard Hugni, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, John Carlo Montenegro, Robert Lewis and Al Nick Ortiz, and to my executive producers, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano and Bogdan Canivet. Thank you for all.